As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Echo Banyaya's dominant 2023 MotoGP World Championship season took a terrifying twist in the Catalan Grand Prix today, but it seems against all expectations when he was hit by Brad Binder's KTM after landing on the track following a frightening high side at the first corner that he's actually escaped it with injuries not too severe. Ducati's reporting contusions rather than a broken bones. He may even race at Misano in just a week's time. I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. Joining me are Val Harunchi and Simon Patterson, like usual. And I think it's fair to say a few hours ago, we were thinking this might be a, a rather more grim-toned podcast than it's actually going to be. We, we, we saw straight away that it was an impact to the legs rather than any higher up. But the fact that Peko may not even miss a race following this is, is really remarkable. So I think the first thing we should do, Val, if you're happy to take the honours, is actually talk to the listeners, in case they haven't seen it, through exactly what happened in, in this incident. Yeah, so Bagnaia got his usual good start that he's been getting lately since a, a change that Ducati made. I think starting with a Red Bull ring or something, not entirely sure. Anyway, uh, because the, the his nearest rival, Alicia Spargo, got not the best start as usual. Bagnaia had a pretty considerable lead coming out of coming out of turn one and through turn two. Uh, looked like he lost either the front or the rear or both coming through the corner got launched into the air off the bike in the high side, went like somersaulted basically. So his head was facing down at one point, did manage to land sort of in a normal position. After landing, because of the momentum, he continued to spin on the ground. So he created like, I don't know what's a normal way to describe it. Centrifuge would be a normal way. I was going to say fidget spinner. That's stupid. Centrifuge. He was He was spinning around and because of this, you know, there was more Banyaya to avoid than there even normally would be. And he has the MotoGP pack bearing down on him. So remarkably, most of the pack avoids him, but they all do a really good job. Jorge Martin does a fantastic job to avoid him. Uh, Brad Binder, who's you know only just suddenly seen a spinning rider right in front of him without a bike, uh, manages to hit him on the legs, which, you know, in the moment of impact... Because of how quickly it happens, you don't even really have the time to get scared. But once the impact happens, you're like, okay, he's alive. But I would not be shocked if he doesn't race again this season. Because, you know, it's the impact is right in the legs at racing speed. 
He gets hit by a bike in, in the legs at racing speed. Um, he's, you know, he's on the ground. He's clearly awake and conscious. So you realize that the damage is maybe not so bad, but he, you know, he can't get up. We'll get to the vagaries of TV direction when it, when it comes there. But yeah, uh, Ducati has confirmed since that, you know, he was to the medical center. He went to the Barcelona hospital, I think of MotoGP medical partner, Keron Salud. Not entirely sure. Um, no fractures discovered on the CT scan, just contusions. Apparently, he was in really good spirits after the crash, according to Brad Binder, who got to visit him in the medical center and said he was surprisingly chilled. Um, we we got away with one, and I don't. I'm not saying that as in like it was a potentially fatal accident because I I like to make this clear. Any time a rider falls in front of the packet is a potentially fatal accident, no matter which way they fall. That's unfortunately. The grim truth of it that's really really hard to s sit here and accept it's just you know it's just how motorcycle racing life is but yeah we got away with one because the the damage looked like it could have been a lot more significant you know basically it could have been a really bad leg fracture that ended the season and instead it, it does sound like he I, I suspect he will probably try to ride him as on yeah simon to what degree is that luck or how much can we put down to the the safety facilities even just within the riders le leathers here because we've seen a lot of crashes over the years where people have suffered really severe fractures from exactly this situation i i genuinely think that this is completely and utterly down to luck um looking back at the crash really carefully it seems like maybe he just got hit at the right spot where the um the, the top of the Alpine Stars Super Tech boots have like a, a plastic, almost like a knuckle that, that closes over the front of the boots. And I suspect that getting hit there did most of the work in dissipating the energy and preventing him from breaking his leg. Um, on top of that, those boots have like a, an inner shell that, that kind of adds a bit of strength. You know, um, and then what you see is, is really only a cover over the top. So there's multiple layers of protection in the boot. Um, you know, the, there's, there's nothing particularly that you can do in that section of the limb to reinforce it too much because otherwise the riders lose mobility and they hate it and they, they refuse to you know use it so yeah it, it was luck it was also lucky that he was spinning just the way he was when he was hit by brad bender and that he wasn't hitting his head instead because that could have been just a horrendously worse evening that we were having right now at that point if that had been the case um I saw a few people talking online uh, afterwards about, you know, why did Binder not avoid him? Wow. Binder did an amazing piece of work to, to you know, to get through that relatively unscathed as it was. Um, whenever you watch back the crash, it, it took me a few watches of this to realize it, but he actually makes contact with Jorge Martin before he even makes contact with Binder because he's trying to take avoid an action to get around uh, Bagnaya's bike. And, and, you know, had he hit Bagnaya's bike, then you've potentially got uh, a bike that's still going to hit Bagnaya, plus you've got Binder's bike skittling and Binder skittling down the road as well. So to do what he did and to get away with that as well as he did was uh, quick reflexes and Brad. But, but you know, realistically, we just got super lucky with this crash. Um, and, and that's worrying. Like, this is, this is not an unexpected crash particularly to see. Uh, given the way that MotoGP is at the minute in particular, I think. And there will be people yeah, rushing out to do the lottery tonight, I think. It is worrying, but it is 
I'd say existential dread rather than dread of inaction. And I, I, know, I know the counter argument to that, and I think we will get to it. But ultimately, you know, the world's smartest people could all get together and try to figure out a way to prevent and minimize the risk of riders falling off their bikes and being hit by other riders chasing them. And I mean, the only the only foolproof way to prevent that is to not race in packs to do time trials uh i know it's you know it's and it's really grim to think about and it's really um i mean i honestly for some reason i had i had this kind of crash on my mind coming into the weekend i suspect i know why um coming into coming into the weekend on on social media there was a horrific massive crash from a brazilian championship circulating on social media that you know do yourself a favor obviously do not go look that up if you want the summary the summary is somebody falls off their bike in front of the pack they're fine and then suddenly they're very much not and there are two fatalities and that's that's all you need to know really but the pace at which that crash moved compared to this one this one happened in like like a second or two the the fact that it it, it is also it, it is absurd to hear any suggestion that brad binder did something different it is remarkable testament to the reflexes of MotoGP riders that the spinning Banyaya was avoided by everybody but Binder and that Binder hit him in the legs, but also nothing he could have done in that in that span of time, nothing he could have very much done differently. Uh, and you cannot put the onus on riders to try to avoid riders in front of him who have fallen. That's, at, like, at this kind of time span, that's not enough. If we want to avoid these crashes, that doesn't fix it. You can't just be like, oh, you've just, you know, you've seen a rider fall in front of you, like 10 meters in front of you, and you're you're arriving in those 10 meters like this. React, good luck. No, no that doesn't do anything. Um, we've already had a situation like this that thankfully was even less of an injury situation. Remember when Mark Marquez, uh, Mark Marquez, Alex Marquez was on his fours escaping uh, several bikes moving towards him after a collision with with luca marini at a track i already forgot because we've been to too many tracks yeah thank you Lamont. obviously it was the, the dunlop chicane yeah, yeah um i just the problem is i feel you, you want to have some sort of righteous fury like this this is how we prevent this going forward this is what we do this is how we, we make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen and how you, we don't need to get lucky again but i don't I don't know how do you fix this. Like the only you can minimize the risk of it by having fewer starts, but I don't. I don't. I don't think you can fix this as it stands with the current advancements in human technology. So, to, to give you an idea of, of the timeline, I've just whipped out a stopwatch really quickly, and from the moment that the rear tire goes till Bagnaya hits the ground, takes about two seconds. And from the time he hits the ground to the worst of the danger is past him, takes another two seconds. Wow, That's how gosh. quickly this happened. Yeah. You know, this is snap of the ice stuff. Um, the, the only concern I have about safety and things that we could be doing differently or should be doing differently about this crash is we've been listening to riders talking about how they're starting races with potentially flat tires, essentially, because they've been dropping the pressure so, so, so low to avoid the new tire pressure rules, which is something we're, we're probably going to come on to later in the podcast. Um, you know, the, the Mich- Michelin's minimum rule, a mi- minimum uh, tire pressure at the minute is 1.88 bar, 
and we've been talking to guys who've been starting the race, all they'll tell us is that it's substantially lower than 1.4. And, and I don't know if that is something that's playing a role here. If that means that the tyre is moving around more, if it means that the tyre doesn't heat up as quickly as it's designed to. Um, I mean, this was, in theory, it was a cold tyre high side early in a race that, that, that makes, you know, a fair amount of sense. Um, and a few of the guys suggested afterwards that Bagnaya hadn't warmed his tyres enough on the on the warm-up lap and that that was partly the result of this. But, yeah, I just have that worry about, you know, is this something that's come out of the tyre pressure rules? Is that why it let go the way it did? Just to help any listeners who are still trying to get their heads around the tyre pressure rule, because I must admit it took me a few a few rereads of the explanation, they only have to be hitting this limit for half the race, correct? So they, this is the theory why they, they can essentially start the race too low. Exactly. And then the theory is that the tyre will, will go upwards as temperatures increase as the race goes on. But they, they have to start too low. That's the, you know, they're, they're yeah. not starting for a competitive advantage necessarily, although that is obviously part of it but they yeah. also you know if they started at the limit it would just go and over. they are not yeah. in clean air yeah it goes to space and then, even if they were in clean air yeah but you know today today we had our first breach of the rule uh maricanales got pinged with a warning and like none of us i think none of us were surprised by you know the identity because both simon and i were immediately like yeah he spent 19 laps leading the race so he probably had his mechanics probably set the tire pressure for a race in the pack. They probably didn't expect him to lead 19 laps because that's a lot of laps to lead. Uh, ironically, they probably expected they probably set the pressure expecting a race where he was fighting against Paco Bagnaya. Yeah, yeah which would exactly. have changed the flow of this race. Um, uh, yeah. So you've you've both mentioned rewatching the crash and replays and even stopwatch timing it just now as it unfolded. All of us swore as soon as we saw the crash happen. And I think we all winced again when we saw some of the particular replays that were shown afterwards. I think, Simon, you were, you were very vocal on this straight away. Yeah, I mean, the, there's there's replaying a crash and there's replaying a crash that, that in the end results in no one being seriously hurt to see what happened. And I don't have a problem with that as long as it's done with a little bit of care and attention to the people involved. Um, I, I don't think me going back and watching the crash, uh, you know, four hours after the race has hurt anyone whenever we know the particulars of, of how they've both come out of it. But what we saw today was shots that weren't replays of the crash necessarily, that were absolutely gratuitous and that were designed specifically to elicit an emotional response and they, they were the TV equivalent of clickbait. There is no reason on earth that anyone needs to see a slow motion shot of Peko Bagnaya rolling in agony in the middle of a circuit while he's still being treated by the medical team and then immediately cut to the pit box to see if it made his girlfriend and his sister cry. That is morbid. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, It's completely unnecessary. Um, I, yeah, I lost my temper on social media about it while it was happening because it it was making me angry. Um, And and I will say that uh, someone from Dorna, someone very senior from Dorna did get in touch afterwards to say that this will change, um, which we've never heard before. We've complained about this before, but we've never, we've never had someone step in before and say, we will do better here, um, which is thankful. Um, I'm glad that, that a lesson has learned from it, but it was, yeah, it was horrible. It was completely unnecessary. 
um, and and they did it to they did it to sell you know to sell the sport on social media pe- to people who don't watch motorbike racing because they want to see motorbikes who casually watch it on social media to see people crash and get hurt. I know it's a like it, it can be read as a as a part of a like a wider strategic issue certainly, but I also like the way I look at it. It you know I for me you know crash replays I don't think I why take as hardline a, a stance as Simon on them? I think like once or twice, even if there's no like definitively conclusive medical information, it's like, you know, whatever. There's a bit of curiosity. I I don't I don't feel all that strongly about it. I'm not gonna go seek it out, but uh it's you know, sometimes it can actually be a bit relieving <laughs> to see what happened even when you're not totally completely sure or at least you know we're all a bit afraid of uncertainty too sometimes i don't know this is this is completely random thoughts what what is clear to me is that some of the shots we've had today were unacceptable and unacceptable in a way to where whoever was in charge of them i think just flat out didn't understand that this was a like somehow did not understand that this is a different situation to normal you know like we we see a rider or a driver or whatever crash out in a race we're watching and then you know the race keeps going on and you show them at the side of the track you know slumped over very sad and normally you you would not like to show people at the moment so they're like this is somebody's professional dream taking a big hit right you you ideally you wouldn't show that but when in MotoGP and other sports like that we subscribe to the contract where that's you know that's part of you know there's glory but then there's also agony of defeat and we get to show it. And some chip must have broken to where somebody decided that agony of defeat includes shots of Pekko sister, I believe, being comforted by, I'm not sure if it was Paolo Ciabatti and Davide Tardozzi, um, one of them, outside of the medical center where Banya had just arrived. That is a shockingly private moment. We, you do not have the right. This is a dangerous sport and there has to be an understanding that some things, you know, I know that we want to show as much as we can, but this is this is clearly beyond that. We cannot show this. There has to be some privacy. This is privacy. This is not that far removed to just going into the medical center with a camera and doing a shot of his legs or whatever. You you cannot do it. You cannot do it. And it it, it that I I don't often have strong emotional reactions to you know specific broadcast choices. I really hated that. I really really, I I was maybe too emotionally exhausted by the by the original impact of the crash to realize how much I hated it. But sitting here now, I man, I hated that. Yeah, it was it was you cannot do this. It was so private. You cannot cannot show people when they're going through stuff like that. They did not sign up for this. Becco Bagnaia's sister did not sign up for this. Come on. I mean, you, you say that, um, you know, they might as well have gone into the medical center and shown his legs. They they showed him receiving medical treatment at trackside, which which to me is not far removed. They showed, you know, this is the same championship that earlier this season showed a medic installing an IV line into Paulus Bagaro as he lay at the side of the track in Portimao in what we now know was a really, really bad shape. It's the same championship that a few years ago showed just, you know, a teenage boy getting unsuccessful CPR in the middle of a circuit as he, de- as he you know, as he died in front of us. But this is not a new thing. Um, the the thing that made it different and the thing that made it even more visceral today was was the way that they brought the family into it, uh, and that was it was just completely unacceptable. I, I, I 
we're, we're a relatively small, close-knit bunch in this paddock. There's, you know, two and a half thousand of us. It's a small town. We travel the world together. We all know each other to see. We all say hello to each other when we bump into each other in an airport. How someone in this world who bumps into Peko's sister on a daily basis and says hello to her, thought, I know, we'll show her in tears. That's good entertainment. How? Like, how does your brain work that way? It, I just do not understand the choice. I don't know if this is like a Catalan or a Spanish cultural thing where it's it's a different attitude towards life and death because that's something that I've seen in, in other cultures. But, I, you know... If it is, then it's time to have a wake-up call and realise that we're not a, a Spanish or a Catalan world championship. We're a world championship, and that doesn't that doesn't wash in parts of the world. You, you know, I, I'm not saying we have to play to the lowest common denominator here, but you have to play to a bit of human decency, and there was very little of it today. I was uh, also playing, you know, being as part of the broadcast decisions. Obviously, all that footage is pumped into the the garages of the various riders who are about to take the restart, which was very fast after the crash. So, you know, Fabio Crossfire, I think, told French media that it was less than optimal. Alicia Spargo was not happy with how fast the restart was, was given, that it, you know, basically many riders didn't really have proper time to attend to their various technical matters considering the number of messes that had happened on the opening lap just yeah yeah i i don't know it's just not a, it's more than a little bit an upsetting topic to talk about because uh, look ultimately Peko Banyaya's physical state is not influenced by what they decide to show sure but I think I don't I don't feel it's a particularly controversial stance to say that let's not show his immediate family well he's just been hurt yeah I mean it, it it's a slightly different issue but yeah like the writers the writers we know in the past have not been happy at having stuff like that pumping into their garage while they're they're preparing to go out again but they were also there was a lot of anger today about the way in which the restart was handled um and I'd imagine that's something that'll come up next week in safety commission and Mizano um you know uh, I think it was Joan Zarco that said that his crashed bike arrived back two minutes before pit lane opened and they basically had to try and, and you know bodge a repair and um, it just yeah it, it was short people's heart rates were still up um, you, there has to be a little bit of consideration for these guys especially you know more than anyone else Brad Binder yeah yes who of knew that he who knew that he'd hit Peko Bagnaya and was obviously upset by it like I've, Brad is a Brad is a pretty stoic guy. He doesn't really show his emotions on his sleeves too much, but today he did. Today he looked, he looked mentally shattered after the race um, because he, he, you know, he thought for a few seconds that he'd maybe killed him. And, and, you know, I don't think he realized that he'd hit his legs in the process. He didn't know how much damage he'd done. And, and you know, literally 15 minutes later, they're sending him back out to race a bike again without, yeah. that that's It's, it's part of the same problem. Um, because again, it's something that's led by TV. Um, it's led by keeping to a TV schedule. And you know, if I could hazard a guess as to why we did such a quick restart today, it is absolutely abundantly clear. It's because our races last forty-five minutes, and one hour after our scheduled race start, the Formula One race at Monza, Monza was starting, and they were trying to cram our race in before F1 went off the line. That's obviously why it was done so quickly. And yeah, that's that also sucks. It's just. Today showed a lot of lack of respect and care for the the people that that are here risking their lives for our entertainment, and 
to line our pockets in the cases of you know the people who are making these decisions. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So we're not going to speculate too much on what happens next for Banyai because it's not really going to be clear till we get a little bit more medical information. Obviously, the first reports are really encouraging considering what happened, but um, we'll, we'll wait to see if he tries to ride at Masano, how that goes and what long-term prognosis is. Um, there's another Ducati rider who we know is definitely going to be out for a while again, and that is his teammate, Ennio Bastianini, who had his own crash uh, well, moments before um, Banyai, while running slightly further down the field, took a lot of Ducatis with him as well and sustained two fresh fractures. So, Val, do you want to talk through this one or is it Simon's turn to talk through the detail of a crash? Nah, that one's... I mean, there's probably less to really describe about it, even though it was, this is more bikes. Now, Bastianini approaches the, you know, the Barcelona turn one right-hander not that sharp but sharp enough this is the corner and his angle certainly was sharp it wasn't like ridiculously sharp but it was you know it was sharp i mean you know he braked clearly pretty late uh a lot of riders on his outside most notably johan zarko going to to take the apex in some way uh he hasn't quite slowed down enough i mean having rewatched it i can't tell if he's like making the apex or not i'm not sure simon says no i think i mean i guess it doesn't really matter at that point because he clatters into zarko who maybe wasn't there at the time that he started breaking okay but ended up there and was always going to end up there so he clatters into zarko and then the resulting chain reaction uh removes three more ducati riders from their ducati bikes namely uh 
Ducati pair, Alex Marquez and Fabio Di Antonio, NVR46, Ducati rider Marco Bezzecchi, who also may have sustained a fracture of some kind. He did ride the remainder of the race in, in a lot of pain. Uh, still not clear he's going to go in for a, for a checkup on Monday. Uh, Bastianini himself sustained a fracture on his ankle, more specifically on like a part of his tibia, the name of which I, I like some medic that I don't remember, non-displaced, and a fracture of the second metacarpal, both on, a, on, the, on his left side. Uh, so I imagine that's another spell on the sidelines, and when he returns from it, a uh, long lap penalty will await him in the next race that he starts. And the general impression from the riders that we've heard from is that this kind of thing does clearly tend to happen at Barcelona turn one, and that maybe there is a point to reconsidering the run down to turn one, how long it is, because it is clearly a very, very long run and they get up to a, to a big speed and then scrub that speed off. But also that Bastianini was, as Franco Morbidelli put it, referencing recent stewards' decisions, overly ambitious, very overly ambitious, and that maybe one long lap is not even enough considering how many riders ended up on the ground, even though he did the most damage to, to himself. Not that that matters for sanctions, obviously. Not that the injuries don't, you know. I mean, the, the, the immediate red flag to me that he was out of control was that you never see... Uh, you rarely see a MotoGP bike these days and you never see a Ducati MotoGP bike these days skipping its back wheel in the air because the rider's that hard on the front brakes and his back wheel was floating, bouncing as he came into the corner. That, that to me, is an immediate sign that he was out of control at that point. Um, and, you know, you just, yeah, he braked too late. I think pretty much everyone that we spoke to post-race was of the opinion that he braked too late. Uh, a few of the guys had said, yeah, you know, maybe we can move the start line closer or something like that. Zarco kind of adopted the grumpy old man persona and just said, well, maybe you could just try breaking earlier too. That would work. Um, and it's hard to disagree with that too much. Um, yeah, it, it, it was messy. And, you know, I... I've I've always been someone that has said we need to punish the action, not the consequence. Um, but I, I think that given the position and given the expectation of causing chaos, uh, even before doing it, you know, being that dumb in turn one at this circuit um, deserve more than a single long lap. I mean, we saw we saw a Moto three rider Denis Onku get given the time penalty equivalent of a double long lap for uh you know for essentially holding his line and not backing off when someone else is dropping in on him during the last on the last corner while fighting for a podium today which was a much more explainable sensible racer decision than just you know plowing into turn one break until it and taking out four other people uh all of whom come from the same manufacturer as you um yeah, I, I would imagine he will be reprimanded quite severely within Ducati for that. Um, quite ironically, it came in the weekend where they confirmed 100% that he'll be their second factory rider next season, which, uh, by all accounts, kind of put Jorge Martin's nose out of joint a little bit because I think he was still fancying his chance, the way their contracts are worded, of, of stepping up there for next year. But, uh, you know, the, the, the other thing is... Someone else did say to me 
did you see how aggressively Martin started that race whenever he realised the restart whenever he realised that uh, Bastianini and Bagnaia weren't in the grid um, yeah it, it, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not Ducati management this afternoon yeah, remember, remember in was it 2015 that Andrea Iannone looked on course for it? Or been 16? Or been, I don't remember. My apologies. One of those years, remember when Andrea Iannone was on course for Ducati Renewal and then managed to take out Andrea Dovizioso in one of the races and suddenly whoops. Argentina no 2016. It was 2016, Argentina. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not saying that's what will happen to, to Ney Bastini. He's had a, you know, he's had a rough time since returning to injury, still not completely at one with, with a GP23. So I think he's a bit probably a bit desperate to to get back into those positions where many of the other Ducatis are and where he expects himself to be. Um, yeah, just yeah, it looked like a, a pretty bad misjudgment to me. Not not malicious, not just, you know, just, yeah, it, 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 it happens. Sometimes you might get away with it coming into that corner, even on that line. This time he didn't. I mean... <laughs> Like uh, sometimes you might get away with it in the sprints uh, if you watch the helicopter footage and one of the bikes just whoo, goes through goes through the pack like like knife through butter but just doesn't hit anybody and comes out on the outside. I think it's Fabio Quartararo. Um, so that could have been <laughs> that could have been a, a lot of things. Uh, Nay, not so lucky today. Uh, best recovery to him. He's had such a brutal rough season through no fault of his own, that long injury absence. This is another injury absence through fault of his own, but obviously, you know, nobody deserves to, to get injured, even if they did a dumb thing into turn one. Uh, you know, best recovery to him, two surgeries, or I guess one surgery in two. I don't know how they yeah, do it. Yeah, I guess they do one surgery. Yeah. General they probably don't want to. horrible. Yeah, they don't so, want to put you under twice. Yeah. yeah, of course. So yeah, one surgery, but double surgery, and hopefully a quicker recovery this time. The, the irony actually is, given the way that we've seen him uh, struggling to gel with the, the GP23 since coming back from, from injury and the, the sort of the really tough season that he's had, even when he's been relatively fully fit, um, I actually wonder if Luca Marini T-boning him and taking him out of the opening race and breaking his shoulder and parking him for so long has actually saved his factory seat for next season. Because I think it's meant that Ducati have given him a little bit of leeway that given how rapid Jorge Martin has been and the fact that he's essentially the only other title contender at this point, um, you know, if Bagnaia, if, if Bastianini had done a full season and had been averaged through it, I, I, maybe we'd have had a very different news this weekend about who's going to be in red next year. Maybe, maybe, although I, I do think he was quicker in Portimao relative to to the rest than he is right yeah, now. Yeah. So I think the consequence of the, the absence is... You know, it, it it is adding on a handful of tenths, I, I suspect. But maybe, maybe. I think it's I think it's this injury that has potential to save his ride if that was gonna be in doubt, because now this is gonna write off some more races. It's gonna write off a race with a test attached as well. And then he's got the flyaways and some some circuits coming up where you don't really want to be carrying the after effects of some of those injuries, particularly as well. It's surely going to leave Ducati thinking we actually haven't particularly seen what this guy can do on this bike yet and maybe make it, make them more willing to give him that other... Well, like you say, it's 100% certain as of now anyway. But to me, if I've been Ducati, I've been looking at these races coming up to go, right, has this worked or not? Do we need to shake something up? Now, actually, those races aren't going to happen for him. When he does come back, he'll have missed a load more acclimatization time and still be 
kind of where he thought he'd be in mid-March, where everyone else has had, by then, about 15 Grand Prix weekends, so 30 races on, on their current bikes. It's But but then he but then he will need to, to be saving his ride in the 2024 preseason. Yeah. Indeed. From yeah, which is which is also not not a very enviable position. I know it's you know, it pushes it back one year, but it is maybe only slightly less unpleasant than just losing it for, for 2024. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So we, we often joke on this podcast about how long it takes us to talk about the person who actually won the race. Uh, when Glenn Freeman stepped in for me while I was away a couple of weeks ago, he did this controversial thing of talking about the winner straight away. I thought we'd probably do that this weekend as well, when I thought it was going to be a bunch of Aprilia victories with um, not too much else going on of note in, in the weekend. Um, Banyaya's crash changed all that so we spent the first half discussing two injured Ducati riders we haven't yet properly or in fact at all celebrated the fact that Aprilia won both races with Alessio Spargaro and got a 1-2 with Maverick Vanyales backing him up in the main race um, I think it was you Val during the afternoon that said imagine saying in 2019 that Aprilia was going to get a 1-2 in a Grand Prix and you know, it looks like a 1-2-3 was even possible for some of some of the race as well so Val you stuck your hand up straight away revel in the glory of Aprilia gosh such a good bike such a good bike such a good bike and it's you know it's looked amazing all weekend at a track that yeah I know suits it but it's also not not some sort of freak extraordinary track and he just you know basically from the first Friday session you could tell that really they have to win here you could tell and you could tell from Friday practice and even when Pekka Banyaya did beat them to pole still you know the feeling was that Aprilia has to get this done and specifically Alessio Spargo because he he did look to have an extra step over Maverick Vinales all weekend which I think was to be expected because I think they both like this track okay but I think Spargo who obviously you know is from just a few kilometers literally away from lives within earshot yeah Granoyers is it something yeah, yeah, like that yeah, yeah. this was really close yeah um and he's you know he's always been pretty great here but he was his fantastic all weekend uh the only thing that gave him any trouble really was the start he was not starting very well even relative to, to vinales and both starts if i'm not mistaken in both starts vinales picked him off and you know in both cases spargo had to fight his way back through which he did on sunday there was maybe a moment where it looked like maybe maverick will hang on there was a mid-race moment where Spargo sort of made two or three errors in quick succession and suddenly a three-tenth lead that Vinales was nursing all throughout turned into like a second and a half and there was a bit of doubt there and Spargo apparently admitted himself well apparently I heard him say it so I don't know what he said apparently admitted himself that at that point he was like okay maybe this is Maverick's day but then he was like I'm gonna make him work for it and he did and he, he closed back in and he had a lot more pace in the end he put in a fairly forceful but fair enough overtake into turn one 
with a handful of laps to spare, and that was that was his race, and he deserved it. Marking Ellis also also did have a really good weekend. It's just this is maybe this is the one track where I just I never really fancied his chances all weekends. Of yeah, it's like you can win, but only if Aleish isn't racing because Aleish has a bit more, and that's you know that's exactly how it pans out. Uh, it's it was really it really was a fantastic weekend for Malaysia and it is super impressive and it only reaffirms everything that we said after Silverstone I yeah this bike is his baby whatever and you know even like speaking to Simon when he was comparing himself to sort of the path of Andrea De Vicioso to Cati and he was like but obviously I'm nowhere near as good a rider Andrea De Vicioso who won you know world titles in the lower classes obviously my career has been nowhere near as good sure but no, nobody. You, you can be elite. You can be super good. And you, you, you schooled the rest of the MotoGP field this weekend. So bask in that a little bit. Congratulations. Uh, he's good. He's very, very good. Uh, for some reason, I remember. I don't remember. Where I'm remembering this form, but I have this vague memory of somebody talking down the level of modern MotoGP post Marquez injury because a guy like Alicia Bargaro could be like on the podiums and could fight for titles. I've seen I think the... it was Alberto Pug. Okay, well, I don't think that's what I'm thinking <laughs> of, but <laughs> but he's done it. Okay. Um but no, 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 no. Alicia's great and he is exactly sort of the kind of story that we follow this stupid sometimes awful sport for, isn't it? It's hard not to love the underdog story that is this weekend. And you know, you said Val, can you imagine 2019 imagining an Aprilia one two here? I had the exact same conversation. I kid you not, this afternoon with a, a man who told me that a friend of his came to this race in 2019, and they had the conversation of imagine if we won here someday. Um, so it wasn't just you that had that same dream. It was also Aprilia boss, Massimo Rivola. Um, you know, they, they said the same thing. Um, imagine it. And here we are. And yeah, it's partly the nature of this circuit. It's partly the, you know, that huge home race bonus that Aleish gets out of being here uh, mentally. Because we know that this, that's the sort of writer that he is, that that pays off. But like, we're in a position now where we're looking at this season, Aprilia lost a race they should have won in Argentina because of the rain um, they've won in Silverstone they've won here they go to Phillip Island with a damn fine chance of winning uh, they go to Qatar with an equally good chance of winning I remember in 2019 interviewing Massimo Revola and him picking off the list of races that they thought they could be strong at meaning you know maybe podium contention and it, it was basically that list you know, and, and here we are four years later and they're smashing it out of the park at those circuits. That that bike is very, very good at certain things. It, it's, you know, we've said it before in this podcast, they've essentially built a V4 engine Yamaha that's super quick around the corners. You could see um, when Maverick Vinales was trying to get past Peko Bagnaya in the sprint race on Saturday, just how much corner speed they can carry in that. You know, he's, he's riding it like a Yamaha with none of the inherent weaknesses of acceleration and top speed um if if they can figure out the next step in the puzzle and if they can keep the two riders that they have right now on it 
there is no reason at all that that bike can't go on to be like a, a genuine title contender within the next season or so. And, and you know, the other thing that's worth noting is that we're, we've talked a lot about how great a day it was for the factory. It was also an excellent day for RNF for the satellite team. Uh, Miguel Oliveira admitted that he he screwed up his front tire and overcooked it a bit, um, and and came home fifth in the end, which yep. is an excellent yeah. result for a year old bike. Um, Speaking to Rivola after the race, he was adamant that we also didn't get to see the best of of what he thought was probably the best ever MotoGP version of Raul Fernandez, who had a, a problem when his front right height device stuck on. He had to enter the pits because of it. But um, Rivola said that the way that he's been managing his tires this weekend, they were expecting a, a top six, top eight from him as well, which, you know, Four Aprilias in the top six or seven of a MotoGP <laughs> race, including one two. It's, it's ludicrous. If you went back a few years ago, it's just, yeah. So they've they've done a huge amount of work there, um, and and everyone in the team, apart from Alicia Spagaro, puts it down to Alish. You know, they they put it. He is the captain of that team. Uh, Rival admitted tonight that that is not something that happened by accident. That is something that he very much engineered into happening because he wanted that figurehead, that that leader, and it's working. And you know, there's such a happy bunch. There's such a well knit bunch. Um, and th- the more I think about it, the more that the more that I think that the decision to sign Maverick Vinales to essentially poach him away mid season from Yamaha wasn't just a genius move in making. Maverick fast on Apulia. It was also a genius move in making Alesh faster as well, because you know the, the bond between those two and the work ethic between those two have kind of been like the final puzzle. Um, you know, Alesh has been building this bike since 2017, but I think every right, uh, I think Maverick is the first teammate he's had that has stayed more than a season. Every other guy has been in one year and out, so the the, the combination valves counting it here. But yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I uh, Lowe's, yeah. Lowe's, Redding, Ianoni, Smith, Salvadori, Salvadori, yeah, Vinales, Vinales. So you know, so that in itself, um, it, it yeah, it's testament to the the squad that they've built, um, and and what they've done with a really with a very limited budget. Eric Vinales described finishing second and being beaten to victory in the final laps as the greatest day of his sporting career, basically. Again, this, yeah. is, this is a rider who's won races for Suzuki and for Yamaha and the Moto3 title. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Maverick Vinales can be a bit hyperbolic sometimes, but he genuinely, he seemed very happy. And there's, like, you can sometimes feel slight hints of tension within Aprilia, maybe. But also, you know, how how, how openly both Aleish and Maverick spoke today about Aleish recruiting Maverick to be part of the Aprilia project and how, you know, how they exchanged bikes on the cooldown lap. Beautiful. Uh, Coolest thing I've ever seen. This is, this is just, this a really, it's a really cool lineup. It's also, again, I, I think Maverick also had a, a fantastic weekend, even though he didn't quite win. And ultimately he was signed probably to take the project to the next level, but it's currently... Aleish who's doing that. The good thing about the, the what we've seen is, you know, not just this win, but I know, Simon, you've likened this bike in private conversations to the old Ducati that would dominate at Red Bull Ring and then finish 13th or whatever at Phillip Island. This, I think this is already a better bike than that because I think Maverick Vinales was very fast at the Red Bull Ring. 
which is not really a bike where you'd expect the RSGP to go well at all. And I think he was already very genuinely quite fast there. I think... Yeah, this during the weekend, mid-weekend, when we were all getting excited by the pace this bike was doing around Barcelona, I was like, yeah, great. Same about Silverstone. The thing that still stuck with me is, even though the races went wrong, it was so quick at the Red Bull ring and nothing about what that bike is supposed to be good at <laughs> should make it quick at the Red Bull ring. Honestly, like the, the whole thing, and the, 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 the reason this weekend is actually like the most encouraging... Did you see how well Maverick Vinales was getting off the line? <laughs> what? What was I'm, any I'm gonna, of that? I'm going, to, I'm going to expose this a little bit. At least one of us, can't remember if it was me or you, Val, I'll just take it and say it was me, suggested he'd had a body double inserted <laughs> for the <laughs> start of the sprint because it seemed like such an un-Vinales start to a race. So sorry, me, Maverick. It was my gag. This is gag stolen valor. <laughs> well, I was thinking it was insult stolen valor. I was trying to like, you know, if there's going to be any hate from a fan base, I'll have it, but whatever. But, like, to be fair, that is, like, the biggest Aprilia problem. Just as long as they don't get stuck behind Ducatis and KTMs at the start, they can get really good results basically everywhere. It's just a really good bike now. It is, again, it is a bike that you do not need to squint very hard to see fighting for the title. It's just a question of the consistency of its two riders under pressure. But more than that, the operational capacity of a team that's still not massively used to being at this level. I, I'm just going to throw in my favorite stat of the weekend at this point, just because, um, although I admit I come up with it and then made Val go and do all the research to figure it out. But prior <laughs> to this prior to this weekend, Alessia Spagaro's 225 Grand Prix starts had produced eight laps led over the checkered flag, and he led 10 laps this weekend. Oh, wow. <laughs> He doubled. How has that happened? He doubled. With how good he's been. Because well, he 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 won on. He only led one lap yeah. over the line at Silverstone when he won the last lap, the most important one. Yeah. But he only led one. He only led five in Argentina when he won there because he left it till pretty late to pick off Jorge Martin. And then every other weekend where he should be fighting for the win, he kind of something goes a little bit wrong and he ends up scrapping for a really impressive second or third. Um, he rarely leads as it turns out he almost never leads apart from this weekend when you know he led a lot um, yeah a lot um, a lot well I mean yeah, enough Maverick led 19 know. laps yeah he, he led enough Maverick led more laps today than Alesh has in his entire career yeah. actually which is wild <laughs> um, the, the start thing uh Going back to being a little bit more serious, we, we know now that Aprilia has basically put a team together to work on starts, on clutches, on electronic strategies since Hareth. Uh, the writers were gushing about the, more than anything else, the responsiveness of that team and, and how often they've been getting new stuff from them. Uh, they work with British company AP, who make all their clutches, and they've been making lighter, faster, better things. Um, I spoke with uh, a pretty technical boss, Romano Obasiano, the morning before the race, and he said that you know it was something that they'd never really put much effort into before. They'd never really considered the importance of it until suddenly now it became such a huge thing this year, and the feel that the rider gets from it and everything became so important. Um, to give you an idea of how crucial the start is and what sort of margins we're talking about here, Johan Zarco was complaining after the sprint race that he messed up his start. Um, and, and that a, a normal good Ducati MotoGP start takes 2.3 seconds to get to 60, uh, 100Ks an hour. And he completely messed up in the sprint race and it took 2.5 seconds. It took two tenths <laughs> longer. That's the margins we're talking about here. Um, as, you know, so it, it, it doesn't take a lot to make a, a fairly substantial gain 
Um, and it seems like Apulia have absolutely nailed it recently. Uh, and maybe all those years whenever we've been uh, sort of quietly mocking Maverick for being really, really terrible at handling a bike off the line, it, it might have just been the way that the clutch felt for him. I feel a bit bad now. <laughs> I'm going to... That point about the starts improving might answer one of the two deliberately slightly bastardly points I'm going to make to round off our Aprilia chat. One, okay, Aprilia's now won two of the last three races, but we're halfway through the season. You guys were very excited about this bike in pre-season testing. Espargo is 106 points behind Banyaya. Should they have got this together sooner or has the bike actually improved that much still through the year? Second point, you did say about leading, about keeping the riders, having the right people. I think that's a um, no no offence meant to either of these two because they're two riders who I would love to see succeed and I love the storyline around Alicia particularly. But uh, are they absolutely elite title winning riders based on everything that's happened in their career so far? Because I'm not convinced that if you're going into a championship fight, those are the two that you want. I wish, like, I wish one of them was really crap so that we could we could just, <laughs> you know, project Mark Marquez into that seat in every episode. I wish one of them was doing even mediocre enough to where I w- I would say they're rife for replacement. I I just I don't think that's the case for you. Want one of them to be Andrea Iannone again? Andrea <laughs> Iannone was actually Andrea Iannone before Maverick he was, was the average. best RSGP rider. Like, <laughs> we, not we, a particularly competitive fight. Yeah, though, yeah, is but, it? but but. But would it would he have been would he have been the best if he had been uh, you know not on drugs? <laughs> anyway, welcome back, Andrea Henry, to the yeah. World Superbike yeah. Championship in twenty twenty four. So yeah, on that point, yes, maybe it would be doing a bit more with Mark Marquez, and we'll get to that in a second, or with Fabio Quartararo. But at the same time, I think they've they are they are a quick pair of guys. They're just not maybe massively robust in the level of performance they uh, you know they produce and unlike somebody like Peko Banya which is a stupid thing to say in a weekend where he just you know went into space after turn two but unlike him sort of have much worse dips in terms of in terms of general performance uh, the bike improved I I would I think I want to say yes but I don't have very I don't have a very good reason to it's just vibes which is not which is not good analysis. <laughs> I think the starts have improved, which is very important. Uh, maybe they've re- refined it a bit, potentially. But it, you know, it was always a, a quick bike. It was just a quick bike that was starting appallingly poorly, and you know, was being tripped up by various things. And here have come two weekends where it didn't get tripped up, and even when stuff threatened to trip it up, it it didn't really. Just it's it's just not a very not a very Sunday and not a very Sunday bike, and probably still isn't. But this, you know, this track allowed them to overcome that. We'll we'll see. I think we we need a bit more data on that. I think there's still no particular feeling in the paddock that this is suddenly a better bike than the Ducati. Ducati's incredible. I mean, um, so to answer the first point, I think no, the bike hasn't substantially improved. I think. We've got to circuits that the bike likes and the riders like. Um, you know, we, we we arguably, we should have been having this conversation a little bit earlier because I think if Argentina had been dry, um, they would have probably have had a strong podium, if not a win there. Um, and the rain kind of scuppered that. Uh, you know, then we went into a few circuits that the bike was never really going to perform at. And I stand by that thing where it's a good bike, but it's a great bike at certain circuits at the minute. Uh, and there's still a bit of work to do there. In terms of the two riders, I I don't, Matt, I don't think that the rider you're describing actually exists anymore. 
with the exception of Mark Marquez. <laughs> I, but I don't think that there's anyone on this. Well, he's well, probably we not don't that know where right he now, is, is he? right now. But, but, you know, I don't no. think there's any writer in the grid who's so head and shoulders above the rest that you could just drop them into Aprilia and have them immediately take this thing to the next level and start winning on it. You know, so you wouldn't say that if you put Quattararo on that bike. I mean, I, I guess the familiarity thing puts him at a disadvantage, but I don't think he'd I mean, be would you doing give him two years. If you put him on it and give him two years, I think he'd be where Vinales is now, maybe where Alicia is now. I mean, he was ahead of Vinales. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was, he Yamaha, was. So. But I, I don't think that you know, I don't think that this is. I think we're maybe not giving the writers enough credit um, for for you know for what is a super competitive grid where no one I really see is, is head and shoulders above the rest. You know, Vinales didn't, or sorry, uh, Quartararo didn't you know, easily cruise to a title. Bagnaia didn't easily cruise to a title last year on, on arguably the best bike in the grid. Yeah, fair play, he's cruising to, to the defence of that title this year, but he's made a few errors along the way and he hasn't been perfect. Um, I, I don't think this is, you know, we're, we're not in the era of MotoGP 10 years ago where there was four guys who you could put on any bike and they'd immediately be winning races fairly comfortably. I think that the things have changed, the grid is closer and that Aprilia have got two really good riders who are doing a really good job on the bike. Um, yeah, I, I, I genuinely, I think, I can't see who you'd want to sub either of them for that you'd expect considerably better performance on the machine. All right, I'll take that. I'm tempted to just say to throw the name Brad Binder at Val and see if, um, see what reaction that gets. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. With Brad Bender, you've got the same problem as you would have putting a leash onto yeah. a Ducati and expecting him to win. Brad Bender has built the KTM to be a Brad Bender winning machine the same way as Alesha Spagaro has built the Aprilia to be an Alesh winning machine. Um, you know, th that is the, the massive benefit that both of those two have. They've been given a, a huge amount of leeway to build their own machine. Um, and and Vinyal has actually talked a little bit this weekend about, you know, how he's riding someone else's bike. Um, he's having to adapt his riding style to copy what his teammate's doing because his teammate has built himself, uh, been allowed to build himself a MotoGP bike, basically. Which, yeah, it makes sense. It's fair. It's, it's a result of having the same light rider leading your development for, well, six seasons. I'm also still not sure that Bender is as good a qualifier as those two guys. So Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Like and he would not be getting yeah, the starts that he's getting with KTM. But no. if you give him some time on the Aprilia, then I'm sure he he could do exceptional and, stuff. And KTM's it. and KTM's clutch. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Bring it with you. Yeah. In in short, this is not a great time to be switching man not a great era to be switching manufacturers and expecting that to go especially yeah. well speaking of which let's talk about um honda and yamaha i think we should start with honda so in a way there's not a lot new to say because they have been rubbish this season they were rubbish again this weekend we, we've, we've talked a lot about the times when the japanese bikes are suddenly at the back and I, I i think statistically this friday in practice was the first time that the, the sextet the four hondas the two yamahas were all in the bottom six places not interrupted by retirements in a race or world cards slash stand-in riders popping in this was like as bad as it was gonna get um mark marquez had some glorious laps in the sprint but apart from that i can't remember i i, I didn't really notice anything quarteraro or frankie morbidelli did this weekend Oof. 
who wants to talk about uh, the state of things on these two first? I think Valve stuck his hand up slightly ahead of Simon. I should say Fabio Carrera scored nine points today, which in terms of the Yamaha versus Honda battle in the Constructors' Championships may as well be nine million points because <laughs> Honda is not scoring anything right now. Honda has Honda, Honda has scored, I think, across its four riders, Honda scored something like eight points over the last three weekends. It's been... And, like, they've been finishing races, relatively speaking, or crashing out outside of the points, relatively speaking. Um, you can judge... I think you can judge a rider's performance, you know, from from the bulk of the stuff you see. You look at the, you know, you look at the bulk of lap times and then you see if any of them feel like outliers. There's a massive outlier at Honda this weekend. Mark Marquez uh, grabbed a toe off of Jack Miller in Q1 to produce a lap that, if I'm not mistaken, was over a second better than anything any of the Honda riders managed at any point in the weekend. And also, like, oh, maybe half a second or more better than anything Mark Marquez himself has managed at any point over a weekend. It was it was alien nonsense. I know following riders helps, but it was it was like it was the one moment where Mark clearly shed the the current minimal risk taking approach. Just went absolutely for it, and all it brought him was scraping out of Q one and then finishing twelfth in Q two because twelfth was was all that's available. Earlier in the season, he'd hitch a ride with Ducati and somehow get himself on the front row. This time, he hitched a ride with the Ducati and said that Ducati was gone after three corners. He could not keep up with it. This was clearly a very bad track for Honda. You know, his lack of grip, just not not suiting its its current malaises or whatever. There were, again, moments where Mark worked some serious magic, but that no longer, like, even gets him in the top five. Top five is a pipe dream right now. I, I'm actually, the more I think about it, it, it is a little shocking, isn't it? Because it's just, it's happened... It's happened like this because he's been absent for so long. It's like at the start of the season, at least he could still get top five, top six, and you'd look at the, you'd look at his preseason predictions that go like, well, we can finish seventh, eighth, ninth. That's where we can fight probably, at you know to begin with, and we can improve. And then all the injuries happen and everything happens. And right now, most of the weekend he's like fifteenth or something like that. He finished thirteenth today. Is still light years ahead of the other Hondas it is unusual it is an unusual situation because you'd look at it and you'd say okay well he's just not you know trying too hard he's preserving himself and he's certainly preserving himself right but he's still well clear of the other Hondas in the races the other Hondas are running in a championship of their own not even not even letting Yamaha play really just letting the Yamahas go you guys go play for some points we're here in 20th, 21st, and 39th, or whatever, running different various versions of the arrow, a second off the pace. Juan Mir looking like he's about to just chuck the thing into the trash and walk away. Um, I know this is a, a massive segue, and I'm, I'm talking for way too long, but Juan Mir began the, began the weekend by talking about how he'd had offers to walk away from the Honda deal, but if he left right now, he'd feel like a failure. And, you know, that you can take that as a confirmation that he's staying. And yet somehow at the end of the weekend, I feel like I've never felt more likely that Joan Mir will not be on the Honda in 2024 because this weekend was, what's a good word, man? Garbage from beginning to end. He was basically lost throughout. I call garbage a bit positive. 
Is this garbage is a bit positive? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So so couple of numbers to make it just just to really drive home the Honda season and this weekend in particular. Um Honda scored one third of their entire constructors points at Coda this year. So so basically Alex Rins solo. Um They've scored seven constructors points in the last three races, Val, since the summer break. Um, the the highlight of this weekend was the fact that this is the first Sunday that both Mark Marquez and Juan Mir have finished the race since the opening round of the championship. And my personal favorite of the weekend was the press release that Honda sent out uh, after the race, where the headline read, Repsol Honda riders stay safe in dramatic Catalan Grand Prix. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's where we're at. Wow. That, that, now, the, a good weekend for Repsol Honda is that no one has broken a bone on their bike. <laughs> like, it's horrendous. It, it feels like Honda, it feels like everything about Honda is just like treading custard at the minute, waiting for next Monday at Mizano to see what comes, to see what happens, to see if they bring a new bike that is in any way better or like close to functional or going to work in any way at all. You know, I think even if you give them a Yamaha, a current Yamaha and told them it was the new Honda and at least it was dog slow but wasn't trying to kill them, they'd be happy at this point because that's how bad things have got. It's horrendous. It is truly horrendous. And both riders sound like people that have just given up. Like they're they're literally they are only there because they can't afford to leave. Um, I heard a whisper at the the weekend that that for Mir to leave next season to go to Grassini would cost him eight million euros, and for Mark Marquez to do the same and go to Primark would cost him thirty million euros, and that Oof. that's why they're both staying where they are, which makes complete sense. Um, yeah. It's it's horrific. Yamaha's a little bit better. I mean, yeah, Yamaha's basically positive compared to uh, the state of Honda because, like you say, Val, at least they're scoring points. You know, Franco Barbadelli was quite upset today uh, because he, um, he he kind of lost out on the restart because he didn't have a fresh new tyre for it and without an old tyre and uh, lost what he believed his best chance was to win the Japanese MotoGP championship as he called it because <laughs> <laughs> what else can you do apart from fight the other Japanese bikes at the minute yeah I should say I was I was very nice to Yamaha in terms of the points scored but I, at the same time as as good a points hole as that was they for won the race last year <laughs> as good a points hole as that was for Fabio firstly this is his track that's number one and two uh so right now the the race i'm eagerly monitoring is whether either of the japanese bike riders will make it into the top 10 in the riders championship this season and right now it is looking like a resounding no because fabio did score nine points but all the riders right ahead of him in eighth ninth and tenth scored either more or basically the same so he's now 20 points behind that cutoff and they're all on better bikes. Alex Marquez, Jack Miller, and Maverick Vinales are all on better bikes and pretty routinely faster, even accounting for Miller's recent form struggles. Um, the good thing for Honda is indeed all of its riders stayed on the bike through the main duration of Sunday's race, although Iker Lacona did crash on the sighting lap for remounting his bike and still going on to finish ahead of Mir and challenging uh, Nakagami. I mean, Marcus's theory is that he's, you know, that the not having Honda's new aero here 
has been helping Lacona, which is a very encouraging oh, thing to say about your your brand's big new development. <laughs> very, very uh, sunshine and rainbows. It's so bad. I, I, my so the way I would describe it is: Do you remember those races where? We knew like Jorge Lorenzo wasn't probably wasn't staying, or we knew that Paul Espargo's contract was definitely not renewed, and then suddenly their form, which is sort of teetering on the edge, just went just absolutely gone. The same thing has happened, but to the whole brand, all of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah it's worse. It's, it, it's worse than the Suzuki slump when they announced they were quitting. Yeah, that's much. Oh, worse. massively. It's much yeah. worse than that. Yeah, much worse. I, I should um, co- correct my my suggestion that Quattararo's weekend was completely forgettable. I, I had forgotten he was seventh in the Grand Prix itself, and I think that's partly because his sprint was so bad. It, that was the thing that was stuck in my mind. But also, I, by Yamaha right now standards, that's a great result. But I, I do feel like a lot of people behind him were kind of freshly battered from being sent skittling at the first corner of, uh, of the main race, uh, of the original start rather shortly beforehand. Um, you mentioned next monday is a big one so we're actually going to be recording the next episode of the race motor gp podcast not post race after the misano grand prix but post test on the monday evening because actually what happens in that test well actually after today i'm not going to say it's more significant than what happens in the grand prix because we could have had a frighteningly significant grand prix today but the test is a big one i can see us opening the episode on honda and yamaha next week yeah quite possible what realistically though given how bad honda's situation is in particular you know i'm looking at this test going yes this will be where we find out if the if it's worth these guys staying beyond next year if anything's going to be better for next year is are things so bad that just one development bike one season is not going to be enough to actually answer anything here are we getting too excited about a test that's just going to be one more step in <laughs> treading water or maybe getting slightly less mediocre or does the fact that so many riders futures now depending on this actually mean yeah this is going to be a real a real crunch monday i mean i think we've, we've kind of touched upon this before um what honda and yamaha roll out next weekend can't be a step it, it has to be a new bike it has to be something substantially like we have to see the shutters come up in the garage next Monday morning and see the new M1 and the new RC213V and think, wow, that's a different looking thing. Because if they just keep trying to do a little bit more of the same, it's not going to work. The, the gap's too big. They're too far away. The worry is that we already know that the Yamaha is going to be very similar because they've already said that if uh, if the new frame works at the test on Monday, they'll use it for the rest of the season, which means... The 2024 engine is physically identical to the 2023 engine because if you can bolt it into one, you can bolt it into the other. Um, yeah, yeah, I would not be pleased about that news if I was Fabio Quattararo. But uh, yeah, the, the, we need to see Japanese bikes that have been designed with aerodynamics in mind from day one and not day 90 of the development process or whatever. This, this can't be just, that's a lovely MotoGP bike you've built, let's slap some wings on it and see what happens now. Because um, that's not how everyone else is building bikes anymore. It doesn't work. So, yeah, we we, we can't have a, a, an incremental step next weekend. We have to have a revolution if we're going to see real change. On that engine point, I'm 
potentially defending Yamaha slightly. The engine was a big step over the winter in theory, and there was a theory that the engine had made some progress. It was actually getting, making the power usable that was now the problem. So I can potentially see the logic in going, okay, the engine's the thing we worked on last winter. Now let's make it work in the bike. Too generous? I mean, hard to say. Because from what from the way Fabio has been talking about it, it's not... He doesn't think it's a matter of power delivery. He thinks it's just not, still not enough grunt in the engine, basically, and that you know they are closer in the speed trap somewhat, but they still can't run the arrow they need to run because of the drag, because they don't have the engine power to counter the drag. So he's like, for him, he still wants just more power, more power, more power, and that's that's that is what he wants. Uh, but it's it, it's hard, to, like it's hard to say how exactly they're running that engine right now, and like what what it really definitively needs whether it needs more usable power just more power in generally whether it's being run in a way to ensure that like it lasts the season basically we don't i guess we don't definitively know that for sure uh so i think i i, I don't think it's like super alarming that it's a, a similar engine design because this year was supposed to be the sort of the first iteration of their new extra power engine and they did provide some extra power so we'll see uh it it could be pretty good we will see it just it, it also depends on what exactly you do sometimes feel like there's maybe slightly a bit of a miscommunication between what fabio wants to see and what he's what is being brought to him so like maybe like it is entirely possible, for instance, that the 2024 Honda will be more disappointing than the 2024 Yamaha at Misano, but that the Yamaha rider will be more vocally disappointed than the... <laughs> the because, again, Fabio Cortaro has not been sparing Yamaha's feelings particularly in talking Ever, publicly. really, since, since they had any problems whatsoever. Mm, yeah. 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 Whereas Mark is more diplomatic, even when things are really bad, even when it's like last year's Valencia test when he realized that this season was going to be a, a trash fire. I mean, if if the Honda is as bad as it is right now at the Misano test, we're, we're just like, we're going to get to the Valencia test and Juan Mir's just not going to be there. He's just not going to show up. He's just going to go home um, and just sort of like quiet quit. Um, that's, that's all there is left to do at that point for him and, and where his mental state is at the minute. Well, Let's find out next Monday. I'm actually, I'm very much looking forward to this with a little bit of trepidation. And I'd, I'd love to see Honda and Yamaha back. Their fall has been a storyline to the point where now their recovery is kind of what I want to, to you know, give another little tale in, into mid-2020s MotoGP. Um, we'll be back then uh, Tuesday morning. Probably you'll hear from us again after that test. We wish our very best to the two Works Ducati riders, Pecco Bagnar and Ania Bastianini, on their recovery after what happened at Barcelona. Um, and the other, of course, the other big storyline for next week will be whether Bagnai even races at Misano and what kind of shape he's in, if he can, and what that does to what might actually turn out to, sadly in a way, given why it would have happened, be a title battle after all. Uh, have an excellent week. Thank you for your company. And we'll see you again after everything that unfolds at Misano. The Athletic.